there are houses. I mean, there's um, there's housing I could go into, but mm -hmm. I don't deal well with the, like the, the group living situation or having having um, um, roommates. Mm -hmm. I've, I've tried that before, and it just it doesn't it it never pans out well for mm -hmm. myself. So mm -hmm. I'm better if, if I only have one or two housemates. I'm good, but when you have nine or ten or living in a dorm style uh, shelter. I can't do it. I, I can't. My my dad always says can't means just can't just means won't try. But I've tried and I really really can't. It's not healthy for me or to the people around me. What so, happens? What what? what um, I just I get anxiety so bad that I just I and I just go away. I either just I split, I leave, and then I end up out on the streets again, mm -hmm. or I'll um, I end up in a fight or. And then I'm kicked out, so it's just better if I just don't put myself in those positions. That was Amy, who we met in episode two, talking about why she prefers to camp alone. The Corvallis Daytime Drop-In Center provides services to anyone in need, but it is really important for people like Amy. Hello, everyone. And welcome to Episode 3 of Season 3, Helping the Homeless, of Local Folks Podcast. I'm Bob Madar, and in this episode, we're going to listen to Elita, the president of the Corvallis Daytime Drop-In Center, talk about the center, its work in helping the homeless in Corvallis, and what she has learned about the homeless as a result. from 9 till noon in the summer mm -hmm. and then uh, and September which is next week, next week we will go into from 9 till 2 so it is definitely meant to be daytime it's not uh, overnight shelter mm -hmm. but we see many of the same people who need sheltering and we um, have a motto it's called where needs are met and see ourselves as a hub for resources. Mm -hmm. uh, we also, the nuts and bolts, basically people come in in the morning and there's a lot of food insecurity with all of those people for whatever reason are under the umbrella of poverty. Mm -hmm. So we have food here all day long. Mm -hmm. We're not a meal site, but it's a good breakfast stop. We have free coffee, free tea, and you know. It's good coffee. Yeah. Good <laughs> yeah. So once they're in the door, what kind of other services do you guys provide for them? Well, a lot of people, need an address to have mail sent so uh, we have a post office box where anybody can have mail we serve probably about 600 people and every day we see um, even in the summer we were seeing pretty much close to 75 people a day and and when the other parts of the year is between 75 and 100 people every day mm -hmm. so they don't all stay after they eat they go and do what they need to do mm -hmm. but some people stay all day so the large function that it was originally designed for, which was socialization, is happening. And um, I like to think of the word harm reduction. If they're here socializing, then they're not somewhere else uh, doing something they're not supposed to be doing. And uh, I think that's a big message that downtown people need to know about because they forget that they're going to be somewhere. And if they're here, it's harm reduction for everyone. Um, and it's not just to try to appease 
bad behaviors in the community, we want to support them to help them move forward in whatever their needs are, our logos and their needs are met. But um, we have some real direct services. Um, we have what's called Project Action. So that uh, gentleman is awesome. He's like a poster child. He's been through a lot of trauma himself and over many years now has uh, become able to give back and he does. He's amazing and the Project Action Office gives everything from Q-tips to um, soup or uh, you know, packaged soup if we have it or uh, clothes if we have it. Um, and his big uh, thing that he can do so well is to try to figure out how to replace people's lost IDs and birth certificates. So he's got a skill set that fits really well. And because he has lived experience, people uh, feel comfortable talking to him, getting Band-Aid or whatever. They come mm -hmm. in, they write their name down, they get what they get. He records it. I think in his past he must have, he had um, experience with uh, recording things. So he has a journal of everything he gives out every day. It's oh, amazing. So we have probably a whole wall full of journals that he's kept over the years. But, you know, we can document that we're important mm -hmm. to these people. We give them things that they really truly need. And sometimes I have to laugh at what he'll keep and catalog and put in a spot. And sure enough, the next day somebody will come in and ask for a piece of twine or a, I love it. <laughs> you know, this that's or that. Yeah, oh, yeah, okay. that's, that's our Rick. So that, that's one of the major things that we have is Project Action. Uh, we also have, um, on different days, different service providers come here. Mm -hmm. For one, we have uh, a relationship with um, Good Samaritan Hospital, and we have a nurse uh, who is with the internal medicine department, mm -hmm. and she comes accompanied by um, someone from Benton County Health Department who's what they call the health navigator. And together, they're able to reinstate or get started people's organ health plans, or if people have been incarcerated and it's been cut off for a while, they can get it back going. Um, they also um, are really good with using technology to solve some other mysteries in people's lives. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And so it's, it's been very, very good. So they can um, actually have doctors at Good Samaritan's internal medicine department that have places that someone can, if they see somebody today and they say, okay, Bob, you need to see the doctor tomorrow. We can actually get you an appointment and not have to wait three months to sign you up with some doctor that you don't know. And so it establishes a medical home. And also it's connected with the Benton County Health Department, which is also a medical home for many people who we serve. And so the collaboration between the two is awesome to see. The other um, connections with Benton County uh, Health Department are amazing. We have spokes that have spokes on the spokes because we have, during the time of the year when the um, cold weather shelters are coming, everybody who's going to use it needs to have their TB test every year. So we have the gal from Benton County will come and give TB tests here as well as at the shelters and she can, you know, have to wait two days to read it and keeping people's minds on that and remembering to come back. Mm -hmm. It's been great to have her come. Uh, we also have all year long the harm reduction team, um, the, um, another group that's called the ACT team, which is the assertive community treatment team are kind of on call. I can call them if one of the people that 
is a client of theirs is in stress, they'll come. Uh, and in fact, they do call me to see if so-and-so is here because um, this is a, a better place for people with high anxiety. They feel comfortable here and they can be met here and then um, they're not lost in space somewhere. You know, and one of the things that you mentioned earlier about the socialization here, mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that I've noticed on my visits is that for a person with high anxiety, it seems to me that being able to come to a place where there are people you know, and, and people that are experiencing the same kind of issues that you are in the sense that we're all kind of, I mean, I noticed a lot of homeless people, that, these folks, they come in and they talk, they're, they're, there's cross communication going on and they're talking to each other. They're, it's a community. There's a community here mm -hmm. in a way. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would suspect that being homeless could be an exceedingly isolating, lonely experience in the sense that you're really not connected to much of anybody. Well, oftentimes you're treated as a leper. <laughs> and so why would you go and be put into situations that make you feel not worthy? This is a safe place where people are respected and dignity can be felt. It's where everybody knows your name. And, and it feels that way. And I think most people respect that and they behave to the best of their ability when they're here. Some people, though, have psych psychiatric breaks. We have had that in the mm -hmm. last week and have to call for help. And oh, a couple other services. One, we oh, have yeah. um, a counselor here once a week. And a lot of people think we don't cooperate, I mean, no, or that every uh, 501c3 is its own little silo. Well, our spokes go far and wide. And, uh, our counselor actually works for COI, Community Outreach Incorporated, as well. And so we contract with him. And, um, a lot of paths cross over, and mm -hmm. we do um, call COI often for other things. Um, and they are very helpful, and we can help them as well. So there's a lot of collaboration between different agencies, and I don't think that that image of having our own little silos is really very true. Mm -hmm. I think we have to. Because we all, none of us are wealthy. We have to work with each other to stretch the limited resources that we have. So, you know, like Vina Moses is where we send a lot of people. We have some clothing here, but certainly we try to send people there. Mm -hmm. um, laundry vouchers, mm -hmm. um, those kinds of things. Uh, Love Inc. helps us a lot uh, with, like, just we were at an adult services team meeting where a lot of the different agencies sit around the table this morning and um, they have, uh, if somebody does get an apartment, they have a closet with uh, linens and, you know, we don't store that here, but well, we, we know where to send them and where to get plates and stuff like that. So there's a lot of interaction and different uh, ways to collaborate with all the different agencies mm -hmm, in town. Mm -hmm. I asked Alita how the center is funded. That all happen? It's all a miracle. We have a little tree in the back and it grows. <laughs> <laughs> Don't I wish? <laughs> Wouldn't that be nice? That would be nice. Would you go out and harvest some 20s? And yeah, we just need some change today. <laughs> yeah. But that's always, you know, the question. Um, I think maybe because I started teaching, my first teaching experience was in Laredo, Texas, and we didn't have any money, so we just got very creative. But um, a lot of the things that 
I need to keep going are donated. And um, like food, mm-hmm. we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more later. Oh, yeah. But um, well, we do have two grants that are pretty much every agency tries for some money from those from the city. One is the city development block grant, which is HUD money from the feds. Okay. And uh, it's always limited. So it's designated specifically for our rent, which it doesn't cover all of it. It covers maybe about a third. Oh. And then the second one that's city uh, connected is called the city social services fund. And that's administered through United Way. And again, there are a lot of people uh, asking for that pot of money, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we get some from them. Mm-hmm. Um, we go out to um, just all the usual suspects and and look for new suspects. And but I think the um, size of our um, operation, if you want to call it that, our our gift here is small in comparison to some of the other kinds of asks that the Meyer Foundation or mm-hmm. would get. Mm-hmm. So we wouldn't be moving the needle very far. And so oftentimes, you know, you spend a lot of time writing for those grants and you don't get it. It's kind of disappointing. Sometimes you do. Mm-hmm. But um, what we found is most successful is to sort of think locally. And so um, we ask a lot of our community, the faith community. We you know, mm-hmm. get a mm-hmm. lot of support from them and mm-hmm. also from just individual uh, people in the community that know what we do. We have fundraisers, which helps to raise our visibility. We mm. had one two weeks ago and mm. uh, was donated the time of the Hilltop Big Band. Oh, yeah, that's a good crew. Yeah, it yeah. was a great time. Yeah. We had a lot of fun, even if we raised some money. Mm-hmm. But what was maybe more important was that people remember us. And, and we had... Um, and uh, we had door prizes. One of the gentlemen down the street, who's the uh, brings us hot meat pies, Australian pies, he said, "I want to donate some door prizes." So we had ten ten dollar door prizes to go to the meat shop, and uh, that was fun. Kind of reminds me of talking with gleaners. You have to be opportunistic and creative in securing funding for your organization. And getting enough money to do the work of helping people in need is always a struggle. Toward the end of our conversation, I asked Alita how she got involved in helping the homeless and what she has learned as a result of her work. Well, that's a good question. I think that um, my experience with growing up was that I wasn't the richest kid on the block, but I certainly wasn't in poverty. And coming to know um, about privilege uh, was much less than when I first uh, started teaching in Laredo, Texas uh, a long time ago. And I also um, started noticing uh, the disparity between rich and poor. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, I became involved with Witness for Peace and did um, some delegations to Nicaragua mm. and to Colombia and uh, Cuba actually too and um, it's just and of course my first teaching experience was on the border of Mexico in Laredo, Texas mm-hmm. so um, the whole notion of uh, another way to live other than my privilege in the Midwest is where I grew up uh, became just kind of a cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. and I was very much um, 
I suppose, motivated by faith, which taught me that I can't just ignore people in need. So mm -hmm. uh, that's probably the first uh, way, uh, the best way to explain mm -hmm. how I've gotten involved. And then when you come home and you start to recognize that uh, it's not just somewhere else that you uh, have poverty in your midst and you start to notice it um, more with the lens of clarity after having had those lessons somewhere else, mm -hmm. um, again, you can't ignore it. It's not the only um, thing that I did. I started the, what at that time was called the Corvallis Homeless Shelter Coalition with two other people. One mm -hmm. was Sister Kathy from the Catholic Church and John Evans from First Christian where they were sleeping in the alcoves of his church. Oh, okay. So we were t really troubled and couldn't sleep ourselves when we thought about people out there um, unsheltered. So we started looking for places that would let us have a, a winter shelter. And the first year, it was um, in an abandoned uh, fraternity. And uh, it was really funny because the guy said, um, well, how much can you pay? And we said, nothing. <laughs> and he said, oh, well, they're sleeping in here anyway. And if you're here, then at least we'll know who's coming and going. So that sort of started the sheltering stuff. But those experiences of knowing how they were living in, you know, it wasn't just in Nicaragua or Colombia, but that people were finding alcoves to sleep in and shelter wherever they could. Um, and uh, how has it changed over the time? Well, I think, you know, I feel um, that my role has been to be a planter of seeds for um, awareness. And the awareness has grown exponentially so much that, you know, it's created some, again, conflict in the community where it was much more pleasant to not think that this was a real thing, mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. you could ignore it, or you could just say, oh, here's a bus ticket, go to Eugene. But it's here, and it's getting worse, not because we attract people here, but that it's just what is happening all over our country. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, Had a question. Um, is is there a lot of diversity within the homeless population? Oh yes. Could you speak yeah. to that? Just a I'd love bit? to speak to that. I mean, you know, most people have some um, implicit bias, and it's because they have one. They don't know someone who's homeless, and secondly, they see um, right off the bat the worst of the worst. They're going to think of uh, someone who is um, just dirty and obnoxious and mm -hmm. they just should get there together but um, the diversity is is huge there's a, a wide continuum of why and what it looks like uh, today at the adult services team um, we have families that come in we've got uh, families we hear about that and see and talk to that are sleeping in their cars with a child and uh, or more uh, people that are looking for a place to park a mobile home or motor home because that's the best they have uh, and it's still illegal. So there's a lot of things. We've got families that are homeless. We've got um, 
from the end of the continuum called rough camping, you know, people that are out with a sleeping bag and a tarp. Mm-hmm, some have mm-hmm. a tent that's a little better. Some mm-hmm. have a tent on a platform that they're not in the water when it's raining. Mm-hmm. We've got people who um, are in the shelters and some people who couch surf. And that, you know, only a problem because it then gets whoever they're staying with in trouble because that's, quote, not legal either. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have uh, folks that... Our students at OSU who are homeless students, one of the uh, people on my board works in that arena at OSU. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a wide variety and the continuum moves forward to like transitional housing uh, and finally eventually you hope that you can help people to move into housing somehow. Mm-hmm. But it's a long, long road for someone who's camping rough and trying to, um, you know, just survive Mm -hmm. and we criticize how they're surviving, but it might be the only thing they can do. After reflecting on my conversation with Alita, I think to be effective at helping others in our communities, the following qualities or habits of mind are really important. Empathy, compassion, resourcefulness, resilience, determination, and plain old courage. She has been a tireless advocate for the homeless in our community for a long time and continues to work very hard to help them live dignified lives on their own terms. She, along with her colleagues at the Corvallis Daytime Drop-In Center, are truly making Corvallis a better place to live for all of us. Now, thank you for listening, and I hope you'll return for Episode 4, airing on December 1st, when we will spend time with some of the local folks who volunteer at the Corvallis Daytime Drop-In Center. KBOO Portland 105.5